I'm Khalil E. Colonna, and this is Nashville. When a town becomes the it city, it's at least partly because it's popping at night. In the eyes of many, a robust nightlife scene is the indicator that a place has become a real city. But often the excitement the it city provides for us is centered around alcohol. But what about people who choose not to drink? And what about those who are under 21? Where can they have a good time, go dancing and see a show? Later this hour, we'll hear from people who have found ways to enjoy themselves without imbibing. But first, for the past several years, payday lenders have been using a new type of loan in their businesses, one that has an annual interest rate of 279.5%. Yes, that's 279.5%. State lawmakers paved the way for this in 2015. So how did the payday loan industry get this level of influence in the state assembly? State government and politics reporter Adam Friedman recently published an investigation on this for the Tennessean, and he joins us now. Adam, welcome to This is Nashville. Happy to be on. Thanks for being here with us. So tell me, how did you come across this story? So it started as a journey of figuring out who was spending the most money in Tennessee politics. It didn't start out about the petty lenders, about any industry in particular. It was who was spending the most money and then finding out why. Well, after a lot of basically data wrangling and hard work, you get to it and you figure out that the petty lenders are the probably the one of the largest spenders in Tennessee politics and advanced financial in particular is like the single largest corporate donor to politicians. From there, it was trying to figure out why answer to that. And so through research, through kind of talking to people and kind of digging around, I figured out the answer to that to that question was flex loans and the idea that lawmakers control interest rates. Therefore, the petty lending industry needs lawmakers to keep interest rates where they want them. So briefly describe to us what payday lenders do. So there are four types of payday loans. There's the traditional payday loan called a cash advance where you basically write a check uh, for two weeks. So let's say you won't need $200 today. You write a check for 230 bucks in two weeks. They assume that you'll be able to pay that money because you get paid from your work or whatever it is, right? That's the first one. Then there's title and pawn loans where you put up your car or some kind of collateral. Mm-hmm. You know, it could be a ring that is all kind of stuff like that. Then there's the thrift loan, which is kind of like when you're trying to buy um, like a piece of furniture or something from a store, you can buy it on like pay, um, pay away, I believe is what it's called. That's kind of the thrift loan. And then there's this flex loan, which is basically a credit card with 280% interest rate, right? So you, oh. if you get a credit card, you probably APR on it per year is 40%, 20 to 40 is kind of the range. This one is even more. You don't need any collateral to put down on it, which opens up who can take out the loan. And it's sort of just just very, very um, profitable petty loan. Now, I want to ask a question about people who can't make payments in a second, but who are the, like the typical customers of payday lenders? Like where are most of these storefronts located? So... If you drive around Nashville, they're located in neighborhoods where people tend to not have access to traditional banking. So whether it is Hispanic communities, black communities, or really kind of where they might find, like the, the main target is young Hispanic and black communities because people maybe don't aren't as financially sophisticated. And so, you know, they walk in, they think, oh, it's easy money, quick. They don't always think about the interest rate in the long term. And the flex loan in particular expands the the sort of pool of who can get this loan, right? Mm-hmm. So for a payday loan, you have to have something to get it initially. Well, flex loan, you don't put anything down. So you can just take the money out, which allows you to kind of reach a bigger audience, but usually it's people who need it in an emergency, right? So if you, I think United Way had a study that like almost one in two Tennesseans live paycheck to paycheck. 
well, what happens if your car breaks down and you need $400 to pay for it to get to your job? Well, you just get the $400 and you solve the next problem later. So people turn to these petty lenders hmm. to get that $400. Or let's say I talked to one guy who owned a trucking business. His insurance went up astronomical one month. Uh, he just needed the money to get to the next month. He took out the money, didn't quite under, fully understand what the interest rates were, how to pay it off. All of a sudden, within five years, he's paying $14,000 on a $2,500 loan. That is Carlos Restrepo, who yeah. you just talked about. It was a $2,500 loan that turned into $14,000. So how, what happens to these people who can't make these payments like Carlos? Well, so he had this business, then the pandemic hit, and he just wasn't able to survive the pandemic. So he still has this debt, and he still is paying it off actually to this day. So what ended up happening was once he defaulted for a long enough period on the payments, they just sued him, took him to Davidson County Court, and they reached a settlement that he's basically paying off paycheck by paycheck. They're garnishing, I think he said, 50 to 75 bucks from his wage, basically, until he pays off the rest of the loan. Uh, it's it's kind of bleak out there for some people to get these loans, right? You. They'll basically want you to pay as long as possible, but not pay enough off, so that eventually, then, then if you miss a payment, they, you can start stacking up all mm-hmm. the all the basically what you owe, and then they'll sue you and try to get the very last minute, last money out of you as possible. Basically. Almost, almost so they have a customer in perpetuity. That's the goal. So that's that's the thing about these loans is like if you go to like a traditional bank, their goal is not to necessarily have you keep paying them consistently. They want to sell you more products. You get a car loan, maybe you get a house loan, maybe you get a college loan for your kids, so on. And they make money on each product. Well, the petty lenders, they don't. That's not their goal. Their goal is to give you five hundred dollars and then have you paying fifty bucks a month, basically paying just the interest in a little bit for as long as possible until you can't anymore. Now you mentioned that state, the state legislature sets interest rates, but I'm interested, what kind of federal or state agencies set regulations for this industry? So the lawmakers as well. So, hmm. it. In 1979, Tennessee amended its constitution to allow lawmakers to control interest rates. Up to that point, there was a, like a constitutional cap. At the time, it made sense. Interest rates were really rising in the late 70s, and the cap Tennessee had didn't make sense. They needed some flexibility. A lot of states have this ability. It kind of opened up this Pandora box, though, where because lawmakers control interest rates, now industries that wanted to exploit interest rates would need lawmakers, and it creates kind of this cycle where they play off each other. You know, rich people who want to loan money at high interest rates then go to lawmakers to have them pass the laws, and then they have more money and just a continuation of that cycle over and over and over. So part of that cycle deals with political donations. Yeah. As you mentioned at the top of the interview and finding that the payday loan industry was the biggest donor to state representatives, how much total have they given? So in the last 10 years, it's about $4.4 million. Mm. And that's just donations. There's also lobbying expenses. So the way Tennessee does, they don't give you an exact number of lobbying. They give you a ranges. So I took the range, averaged, and it's like $10.8 million. So the last 10 years, about $15 million from the industry. And this includes uh, companies like Advanced Financial, Title Max, Check Into Cash, all the way to these associations that are called like the Tennessee uh, Consumer Finance Association, which is a, basically a payday lender association. So some pretty big findings. I'm wondering, what was the reaction you heard from payday loan companies? So the biggest reaction I got was actually from the Republican lawmakers uh, in the sense that they believe the industry sort of has always existed and that it's not just on them. But at the same time, you look at it, they have oversaw one of the like biggest increases for this industry in terms of money. The pay line industry, I think, is used to these kind of stories. Um, you know, I spoke with Advanced Financial, one of the communications guys and the lobbyists, and I think we talked, he understood what the story was. But they've, they've been getting hit like this stuff for years. I mean, they, there's all kinds of stuff about them donating to Trump's campaign in 2016. And there's just all, it's just, it's a very... They understand what they're doing, but it's very profitable. 
Now, is this business model of highly inflated interest rates the same in other states? It depends on the state. So if you go to our neighbor, Arkansas, they have a constitutional cap, like a uh, constitutional cap on interest rates. So they don't have these petty lenders. Uh, Georgia has a cap. They have certain kind of loans you can get, but not every kind of petty loan. North Carolina, the same same way. But you go to Mississippi, very similar to here. The difference with Tennessee is this flex loan. It is a kind of unique kind of loan that is that is just so different than any other type of payday loan. And it's, it's only really in Tennessee. There are other states I think have similar things, but the flex loan is a kind of Tennessee, like u- unique thing. So I, I imagine that the, this flex loan has been highly profitable. Yes. So they track sort of in like groups of how much each loan generates an income uh, at the state. Uh, the last year of flex loans made 670 of the $830 million in mm. basically payday loans. Right? So if you if you add up payday loan income, title loan income, and flex loan income, flex loans made up 80% of that. Uh, before the law was passed, the total income from these lenders was like 430, so it's doubled in about five years because 2020 is the last year they tracked, and almost all of that is contributable to the flex loan. Well, so what's next for you with this story? Well, so I think there's some other aspects to it that I find super interesting. So there's, I mentioned that uh, Carlos had been sued. A lot of people in Nashville have been sued by these companies. Uh, I want to dive into that a little bit, kind of look at that. I don't think it's just a Nashville issue. I think I've heard stories about other counties that have had it, but just to look at the court aspect, because that's something I think that's always kind of um, underreported and lost in all this, that at the end of the day, our government system, because of people defaulting like loans, is having to like deal with these these loans, and it's maybe it isn't the appropriate way, or and these people are sort of going to court, and a lot of them don't have lawyers, and they're sort of just trying to get on and move on and not have to worry about this. And it's just, a, I think it's a very interesting aspect to it. That is Alan Friedman, state government and politics reporter for the Tennessean. Alan, thanks for sharing your reporting and being on the show. Appreciate it. It's Adam, by the way. Adam. Adam. <laughs> okay. Sorry. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll explore the nightlife options in our town for people who have chosen not to drink. Do you stay alcohol-free? What do you do when you hit the town? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. It's no secret that drinking is a big part of Nashville and its nightlife scene. You could even say alcohol is a pivotal part of Nashville's reputation. Have you all heard the country singer Willie Jones' song, Bachelorette's on Broadway? Just down, hopped off of the plane, had a hell of a day, gotta get me a drink. So I hopped into a car, headed straight to the bar, for me out, little Hank. Pull up, seat party, buses, girls on top like it's nothing. Dancing like the ones in sight, with just one girl in white. Okay, that song is kind of catchy. Everybody in the control room is dancing right now. There are many, many more just like it, with references to Tennessee whiskey and drunk girls at shows. But the wild and raucous entertainment that alcohol environment that alcohol can create is not for everyone. So how do people choose not to drink and enjoy themselves when so much of our nightlife culture centers around alcohol? I'm joined by a few folks who live that lifestyle. Artist and life coach Samantha Cutler and musician Jason Goforth. Welcome to This is Nashville. Hi. How's it going? Good. Great. Awesome. Thank you both for joining us today. So 
Samantha, tell me, when did you move here and why did you decide that this is the place for you to be? I moved here in 2006 with a rock and roll band from Seattle. Okay. So. What were your impressions of it when you first got here? I actually was like, oh no, have I made a terrible mistake? <laughs> it was so hot. I'd never experienced heat before like this. I'd never been to the South before. So I was just very much in culture shock when I first got here. Okay. So as that culture shock is waning mm-hmm. and you were getting acclimated to living here, what were some of the things you did for fun? How did you enjoy Nashville's nightlife at the time? Well, I was working in bars. I lived in East Nashville, working in bars, playing music in bars. So, you know, back then, East Nashville was a really tight-knit little uh, community, and I was a big part of it. And I just went to the same four bars that we all went to, and we traded money. (laughs) Which, did you drink much at that time in your life? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Okay. What bars were they? Uh, Beyond the Edge, Three Crow Bar, uh, a bar that no longer exists called the Alley Cat, um, and uh, the Red Door, okay. those were, and the Five Spot. Okay. Now you've worked as a bartender. Then, mm-hmm. did you start? Did you find that you started drinking more as a result of that job? The job and also being a musician, the whole the whole culture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was a bartender once, and I found pretty much the same thing. You yeah. do tend to lean yourself toward drinks. Now, tell me what led to your decision to stop drinking. Uh, well, I got very depressed and, uh, I come from a family of alcoholics and I saw the signs of alcoholism and, uh, I can't, I couldn't tell you why I did it when I did it. It just was one of those things where I, I hit the, the bottom, um, of what I was willing to put up with Mm -hmm. and, uh, I got sober. Did you find that you had support from the community? Actually, yes. Not everyone. It was about 50-50. But yes, I I was uh, very loud about my sobriety at the beginning. So I would go to bars and drink a lot of Red Bull and talk about how awesome sobriety was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, it, it did save me in some ways because the bartenders all knew that I was really trying to not drink. And so I'm not sure. I didn't try to drink, but I'm not sure if I would have been able to get a drink at some of those bars at that time. Mm-hmm. Now, Jason, you've lived here for 19 years, and you're also a musician, right? I am. What brought you here? That's a long story, but uh, I won't get into it. But uh, mostly music and an answer to uh, a strange prayer. Hmm. Tell me a little bit more about this strange prayer. Um, I went through a horrible breakup. I was engaged to a girl in my hometown in North Carolina for six, six and a half years. Uh, you know, she gave me the ring back. We were we were on the rocks, and so she gave me the ring back, and I was upset, and I prayed. I was like, all right, God, what was that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was a waste of time. And I was like, all right, if you want me to take music more seriously, then you make it happen. I was a musician at the time in North Carolina, and I just prayed. I was like, God, if you want me to take music more seriously now that I've got nothing else to do, uh, you you make it happen. I'm not, I'm not doing anything because I just... I just spent way too much time on this girl. And I was like, God, if you want me to move to Nashville or Atlanta or New York or L.A., then you have to do it. I'm not doing anything. And okay. I, I actually I actually cussed at God. I think God can handle it. And uh, I three days later, after that prayer, it was on a Wednesday night, Saturday, that following weekend, uh, my buddy Carl said, I have a strange thing I need to talk to you about. I'm like, okay. 
And uh, he's like, well, my wife and I, um, we believe we're supposed to help you do something. And I was like, okay, wh what is that? And they're like, well, we're mo we decided to move to Nashville. And I'm like, oh, okay. And they were like, well, we feel like you're supposed to move with us. Mm. And I was like, mm -hmm. oh, shoot. Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, God, I guess. <laughs> Prayer's answered. And yeah, and that's, how, that's why I'm here. Okay. Literally. And uh, the first house I moved into was actually about two miles from this spot right here. Okay. Very close. Yeah. Right up Clarksville Pike. So 19 years later, yeah, you're here. Now, you know, you were out there and, and, and as Samantha mentioned, you know, drinking and being a musician are a mm -hmm. little bit synonymous. What was it like for you while you were playing venues and getting acclimated to town? It was strange for me. I, when I moved here, I was 27, 28 and I wasn't a, I wasn't a heavy drinker and I started going and trying to meet people and play music. But as in that process, um, the bartenders were like, Hey, since you're here playing music at this such and such, it was actually cafe one, two, three was my frequent bar. It was across the street from, across the street from uh, 12th and Porter. And I went there a lot and that bartender and I hit it off and she just started giving me free drinks all the time. Mm. And I was just like, this feels great. This stuff, you know, and I grew up in a family of like half of my family's alcoholics and I never got into it that much. But then when I moved here, it was like drinks were being handed to me. And then I got to where I was just like, wow, this knocks the edge off. I'm more relaxed. And, um, this helps me, you know, in my mind, I was like, this helps me play music really well, mm. you know, and it makes me not nervous. It's, uh, the La Courage, I think some people call it. Yeah. That social lubricant. Yeah. And so fast forward, you know, 15 years after that, um, I noticed, okay, if I don't drink, I get the shakes. So then it became, my body became dependent on it because it just, it just kept ramping up. And then it just turned into my body was addicted to this substance. And then that's when I realized, oh God, I'm, I'm going to die if I don't quit this. And so I quit and it was, it was a rough time, but I'm, thank God I got through that. Yeah. Were you able to be supported by friends? I was surprisingly, all of my friends that are still drinking and <laughs> a lot of them are alcoholics. They don't know it. Um, they were extremely supportive because they saw how much I was drinking and they were afraid that I was basically going to die. They told me that once I quit drinking, they, mm. they came to me and they were like, Hey, we're really glad you quit drinking because we didn't want to say anything to you since you're an adult. And, uh, they were like, we're really glad that you quit on your own because we were literally afraid you were going to die. And looking at pictures, of myself during that time. I looked like death. I looked horrible. It was it was pretty bad. So, If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. This hour is all about Nashville's nightlife and what options are available to those of us who are sober. Tweet us your thoughts at This Is Nashville. I'd like to introduce my next guest. Marcus Whitney is an entrepreneur, author, and investor. Marcus, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Khalil. How's it going, man? I'm doing all right. How about yourself? I'm good. I'm good. So I understand that you became sober in the past few years. Tell me what led to that decision. Yeah, it's about three, uh, three years, eight months uh, ago. Um, and uh, it was it was really just, I think, for me, uh, an accumulation of of experiences that um, started to add up as, you know, being negative 
and then also um as i get older you know the hangovers just just did not go away nearly as quickly hmm. um and uh and i just was like eh, i'm just not really into this anymore so i uh, just made the decision to um to just to, to stop uh you know i i think i also was at, was at a point in my life where you know i didn't really have a good reason to do it because i didn't need any more friends i had you know family intact was married got two boys um you know had had many of my best friends kind of in place and it was just like you know what am i really doing this for at at this point right mm. um you know when i was younger i was doing it to uh to fit in to build a network uh as you started the the segment you know by stating nashville it, it does have a have a culture of um of hanging out and of partying and that's not exclusive to you know the musicians and the bartenders it's also true of um you know sort of business and entrepreneur you know community as well <clears throat> um happy hours and things of that nature so uh I, I just had gotten to a point where it was hard to to point to the real reason why i was doing it anymore and uh just made a decision for my overall health now was there an explicit pressure to drink during those business meetings or and or you know um, networking functions or was it just more of an ex unspoken expectation I, th I think it's an unspoken expectation that um, that then turns into a habit right and and then and then the habit sort of turns into a crutch and uh, you know alcohol can be pretty insidious in that way it's a pretty effective tool I think for um, both taking your mind off of struggles as well as um, you know helping you uh, to not be as anxious in social settings right so it's pretty effective it just has long-term negative ramifications so um, so in the short term it's like it's pretty good um, and then in the long term it, it, it kind of turns on you and so I wouldn't say it's an explicit thing there weren't people I mean look there were yes there were occasions where people would be like you know you know why aren't you drinking or whatever but that was not the the general sentiment but you know when you're going out to networking events or uh, things like that that you know alcohol is is consistently present um, that's just that's just part of the deal now how did your decision to stop drinking how did that change your social life did you continue to go out uh, I didn't for a year. Uh, so, you know, I, um, I, I did not believe that, uh, that I was strong enough in the first year to like continue to go out. So I, I canceled some things. I canceled some events Some like, you know, a trip to Miami that I regularly do with my friends canceled that. Um, and I just needed to get through a year of like, uh, kind of milestones, right? So I needed to get through a birthday. I needed to get through New Year's. I needed to get through 4th of July. You know, these like events that are uh, very, very closely coupled with alcohol mm -hmm. in adulthood. Um, I needed to get through a year of those and just sort of be like, okay, now I know what that's like. And I think the other thing that ended up happening through that that I didn't anticipate was um, I sort of refound my ability to have fun, be funny, you know, um, like I, I refound my personality without alcohol, which is a really interesting thing that doesn't get talked about enough uh, that, um, you know, dependence on alcohol be, because it's kind of a crutch, it, it can actually like dampen your natural personality. And so, um, you know, over the course of that year, I started like refinding that personality, which was awesome. And that has in, in in, uh, in no small part been a big reason why I've stayed sober because I just like myself so much more, huh. uh, you know, without alcohol. Give me an example of a moment that you realized, wow, I am funnier than I thought and did, and you found yourself again. I think it was when I started going back out to bars with my friends, right? I, I think it was when I, when I felt like I could go back out 
Um, I didn't need to wear it as a badge that that I that I was sober, and I was just hanging in the conversations and and making jokes, laughing, and just feeling totally comfortable, and just having a good time with my friends. You know what I mean? Um, that for me, I think that was the 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 moment when I realized. Uh, I had really done something fantastic for myself. Now, Jason Goforth and Samantha Cutler are still with us. Now, Sam, I see you're agreeing with what Marcus was saying. So how did you notice the change in your social life when you decided to give up alcohol? Uh, it changed gradually in different ways. It's been about 10 years for me since I've drank. So uh, I also reconnected with my silly side and with my fun side over time. And for me also, I started to reconnect with my emotions for a long time. I was very numb. And so every year I get more emotions back and more, um, experience of just like being present in the moment. And that's really incredible. And it's what I was always seeking when I was drinking, but, uh, I never really got there. I always went way past that. Mm. So now I have really beautiful moments of just feeling very present in, uh, in my life, which I love. Jason, you were still performing. Did you notice a difference in yourself? Yeah, I had to push past a lot of nervousness and anxiety. I still deal with that. Um, I've noticed that basically if I eat uh, more than one meal a day, I feel better. Um, so there is still the dry drunk thing that I do with just trying to learn how to take care of myself. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I've just learned, you know, taking walks and stuff like that and getting out and moving before or after shows even uh, helps. But yeah, I still get really nervous when playing music in front of people. If I'm in, if I'm in a, if I'm doing an arena gig, it's not as bad. But when you're playing at like a small venue, like the basement, I turn into just a pile of mush, and I just get jittery and shaky on stage, and because I can see everybody's eyeballs looking at my hands and mm. my mouth, whatever mm -hmm. you know. I don't know. <laughs> mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned earlier that your friends told you that they were worried about you, but mm -hmm. only after you decided to stop drinking. Why do you think it's so hard for us to kind of confront and talk to each other about habits we have that are leading us down a particularly perilous path? Why do I think it's so hard to yeah. for people to, to say, hey, I think you're I think something's going on. Yeah, I think um, just out of fear. Um, I, I, like I said, I still have friends of mine right now that I worry about. And uh, I kind of jokingly say something to them about it. I'm like, hey, uh, you know, it's 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 two o'clock, man. Like, uh, what what are you doing? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. you're you're already drinking. They're like, well, it's it's you know, it's five o'clock over there uh, or blah, blah, blah. You know, it's those dumb jokes. But. Yeah, it's it's hard. I think it's just hard for adults to call each other out on certain things. And I think especially living in an age where we we just don't want to offend one another and stuff like that. I'm just like it's 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 walking on thin ice and eggshells. And I think for my friends, they were like it was hard for them to come to me. Most of them said because they're like, well, you're an adult. We're not going to come to you and say you need to change this about your life, even though my you know, my face was gray colored because I was drinking so much. I was mm -hmm. like, a, if you would have said something, I would have been, <laughs> I would have just been like, okay, I appreciate it. But I don't know. It's really hard. 
it's really hard to talk to people that you're closest to. Um, I think it's easier to talk to strangers. Mm-hmm. Like if you if you just like popping up a conversation with like a stranger at a bar that you can clearly see as probably an alcoholic. It's easier to talk to people you don't know because there's, I don't know, there's no responsibilities afterwards probably, you know. Now, Samantha, you work as a bartender mm-hmm. and you have regulars, I'm sure, who come in, maybe have some of these habits that are getting unhealthy as someone who's sober and maybe even strangers, as Jason was kind of alluding to. What is it like? What have you noticed about people and their drinking habits as being a sober person? And do you have the ability to say something to them? Well, I certainly have the ability to say something to them. It's been my experience that people don't get sober until they are able to see it themselves. And so I could scream at the top of my lungs to anybody close to me or to a stranger or somebody at the bar that they might be an alcoholic. But until you accept that yourself and can really see it, there's nothing I can do as an outside person. So, you know, I have people in my life who I worry about. I have a running list in my mind of people. And luckily for me, some of those people have actually gotten sober and I've gotten to watch them have great lives. And then I've also had regulars, you know, the bars that I worked at when I first moved here, I can think of several regulars who are dead now Mm. who drank themselves to death, um, who were already well on their way before I ever met them, but they were the old men who would come in at 10 a.m. and they would sit down and they'd order a Miller Lite and a shot of Kettle One, and they might have been the sweetest people in the world, but, you know, they didn't live for very long. So I just know for myself, I couldn't have gotten sober by somebody telling me to get sober. I had to accept it myself. I had to see it myself, and I have no idea why I was able to do it at 28, and it takes other people years longer. You know, I'm grateful for that, though. Did you notice the pandemic changing anything with people and their drinking habits? Absolutely. I I think people drink a lot more and drink a lot more at home and drink a lot more isolated. And I can say, uh, as someone who goes to places where sober people are a lot, there's a lot of people trying to get sober right now. A lot of people who hit bottom during the pandemic. Yeah. Now, Nashville in particular has so many shows and events at bars and it's tough to avoid alcohol, you know. But Marcus, what would you tell people who are just trying to start a sober journey in this city? Um, I, I would definitely say if, if it's uh, I mean, it, de- it depends on, on who the person is and, and where they are in their life. Um, you know, I don't think it hurts to be in community with other sober people um, because one of the one of the biggest reasons why I think people don't quit is because they fear isolation, uh, and I think there's good reason for that. Uh, because I think you know alcohol is a is a largely societally accepted um, you know tool, and and it's it's part of what it means to be part of society. And so the idea is, if I stop drinking, I'm going to be somehow cut off from you know huge parts of of of, uh, of society of my community and that's that's very scary right and so i think trying to find community is really important one of the big things that uh has been a general rule of thumb for me is anytime i'm trying to make any change that's positive i can't leave a lot of uh blank space where that where that bad habit was i need to try to replace it with something positive and so um you know a lot i, I don't know some people say you know this is just sort of you know taking the same addictive behavior and replacing it, but whatever. I, I, I think, uh, you know, going to, you know, spend more time at the gym or, 
you know, spending more time, you know, doing yoga, or just, you know, spending time in places where, where other people are sober can be, can be really helpful. Uh, but trying to just replace that time with, with something else uh, is, is helpful. And just to quickly talk about the pandemic thing, I was so lucky that I got, um, uh, that I got sober before the pandemic, because by the time the pandemic hit, uh, I was, you know, I had done my my year of, of first experiences. I was very, very comfortable and I had replaced a lot of those, uh, you know, a lot of that time with, you know, walking, running, lifting weights, martial arts, uh, you know, just a lot of really healthy habits. And so by the time the pandemic hit, I had all of those things in place, meditation, et cetera. And, um, you know, that was that was just clutch for me because I agree with, with Samantha there, uh, a lot of my friends are now trying to dial back, you know, the, uh, the excessive drinking that they did during the pandemic. Now, Samantha, where are some good places that people can go for Nashville nightlife if they don't want to drink? Well, I think you can go anywhere and be sober if you do the work to stay sober. So you can be around alcohol. Um, I personally like going to music venues because while there are a lot of people drinking, they're not there for alcohol. They're there to see music. So I like going to music venues. I also work at music venues, so I may have a little bit of uh, Hmm. (laughs) a bias there. Um, But also coffee shops, of course, are really great. Restaurants are great. Um, I also love Third Coast Comedy. That they do have a bar there, but they have lots of good options for um, sober people, and people are there just to laugh and have fun. It's not about drinking. So I always recommend go um, with people who don't drink a lot and also have your way, your own way to get out of there. Make sure you drive yourself so that if you do become uncomfortable, you can leave. Okay. That is Samantha Cutler. She was joined by Jason Goforth and Marcus Whitney. Thank you all for coming on to the show today. Really appreciate it. Enjoyed talking with you. Thank you. Thank you. We're taking a quick break. When we come back, we'll meet a few young adults and learn how people who are under 21 navigating Nashville's drinking culture, how they're doing it. Are you under 21? Where do you go for a good time? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. It's 5 p.m. on a Wednesday. This may not seem like the perfect time for a night out in Nashville, but between the walls of a warehouse-turned-arcade in South Nashville, Game Terminal is busy. The music's loud. The lights are off. The entire place is lit up just by neon signs and screens of retro arcade games. And a bonus for folks who aren't old enough to drink alcohol, until 8 p.m., people under 21 can have as much fun as they want. They can even buy themselves a mocktail at the bar to drink while they play. The place is full of games like pinball, Pac-Man, Frogger, Mortal Kombat, you name it. Adult Chuck E. Cheese, you know, people love doing that stuff. Caleb Williford is here to have that kind of night out. He's 20 years old. Like, there's a lot of variety. You don't have to be a, a drink to have fun, because that's kind of thing that hinders you at Nashville, because Nashville is a, it's a drinking town. I go to Vanderbilt, and, like, 
everyone that's upperclassmen always goes down the, the Broadway, but having places like this and like, like Lonnie and stuff like that, having that influence with the younger people that can still have fun at night, it's, it's great. We're all interns, so we're a mixed age group, like, of, like so from like 19, 18 to like 28. So that's like, this is, they need a place that's inclusive to everyone to have fun. So that if you're older, you can still drink, but if you want to chill out and play the games, you can still uh, drink and um, hang out when you're younger. Again, I see a lot of retro stuff. You know, most of the newer like Day and Buster stuff has a usual like that spin the wheel stuff. Like I, this place a lot of, like retro stuff. Like I only heard about like on like the internet, like Kingslayer, Tron. I, I like playing those. Those are nostalgic. Man, I remember those games. They're a lot of fun. Our 20-year-old interns, Jackie Janos and Doreen Chernecki, went to Game Terminal to check out the place after seeing it on TikTok. Here with us to talk more about nightlife options for people under 21 in Nashville are Varsha Nair and Nikki Wildly. Welcome to This Is Nashville. So, Hi. Hey, how's it going? Thank you. We're doing well. Thank you. Oh, wonderful. So great to have you with us. So, Nikki, you are heading into your second year at Belmont, correct? Yes. So what did you think about the nightlife scene before you came here? Um, to be completely honest, I thought uh, I didn't think too hard about it when I was picking a school. And then when I got here, one of the big things, it was like, oh, you need to go check out Broadway. I was like, cool and i got there and i was like this is very overwhelming hmm. there's not really much for me to do down here like i can't really go into any of these places and so i realized pretty quickly that this was that was not really downtown wasn't really a place where i was going to be spending my time at all and i realized i was going to need to find some new places to have fun so how did you go about exploring these new places I got really lucky that I made a few friends pretty early on, especially who were older, and they were like, here's all the really cool places to go. And even then, I didn't go out too much and really try anything other than going to new restaurants and really just getting a feel for the place because I am not from Nashville. So I spent a lot of my time just kind of going around seeing what, what there was to do. But this past summer, I've had a lot more fun with like people who are who live here and who are also like have been here for a really long time and they've been taking me to new places. So tell me, what are some of the nightlife activities that you enjoy the most? I will say uh, concerts are my big thing. I also do go to a music school, so sometimes it's even more exciting because you have people that you know who go to the same school as you going out and playing and you're going to see them and it's just not something that drinking really needs to be a part of really at all and anyone can go enjoy it so I go to I've been to so many concerts this past year but also um, one thing that actually technically is down on Broadway is they have rooftop line dancing that is completely free and it was open to anyone and so me and a group of uh, people my age went up there and we learned how to line dance and that mm. became like a weekly favorite activity and there were also other people who were around the same age and it it wasn't like anything that involved drinking it was really just like going out and having fun and learning how to line dance in the heart of Tennessee where does that rooftop line dancing take place 
I believe it is the Sky Deck Nashville, which is right above the Food Assembly Hall, which is also a really cool place to go. I'm a big fan of that. Okay, now Varsha, you were a student at Vanderbilt, and you made a conscious decision to not drink alcohol even after you turned 21. Tell me why. This is true. Um, So I kind of grew up in an environment that didn't have a lot of alcohol in it. Um, So I wasn't really exposed to alcohol early on. And then when I did um, learn more about alcohol, I feel like it was your traditional like health class scare tactic energy where they're like anybody who drinks a sip of alcohol like is going to become an alcoholic. But as I learned a little bit more about drinking culture and I talked to some of the people in my life who had been drinking alcohol or were abusing alcohol when they made some decisions they weren't particularly comfortable with. That kind of reasserted for me that alcohol wasn't maybe something I wanted to be a part of my life. I also think as like a neuroscience major, I definitely once I learned that the brain had the capacity to kind of grow and change at its most until we were 25 and then continue doing that till literally like the day we die. I think for me, that was also kind of the point in my life when I decided if I couldn't learn how to have fun and how to find people I trusted and to kind of um, become a person in the world without using alcohol, then maybe alcohol would be something that would be more of a hindrance to my way of life than mm-hmm. something that can add to what I wanted to do. So when you came to Vanderbilt, did you find mm-hmm. that drinking was a part of the culture there? Oh, for sure. I think it's so funny when I was listening to Nikki talk, it's like hearing yourself in a mirror. When I was looking for colleges, I was not someone who like went out much in high school or anything. So I wasn't really looking into the culture of college campuses, if that makes sense, when I was applying. And so when I arrived at Vanderbilt and I realized that there was a pretty intense like college party life. Also, there's a lot of like frats and sororities on campus. And a lot of people who weren't part of those like communities still wanted to, you know, go to Greek row and enjoy parties. That was kind of what it felt like the majority of college nightlife was like in the beginning. That was definitely kind of overwhelming at first, just because it seemed like a lot of people in college who were, you know, having a hard time being a college student and were, you know, under these intense workloads were also looking for a way to release that steam. And often that meant partying or being in alcohol related settings. Now, how did you respond when you had peers who were pressuring you to drink or asking you why you chose not to? So I think one of the first things I learned early on was one, how valuable it was to be upfront about the fact that you're sober or you don't drink. And two, how helpful it is to have some sort of ally in your corner when you're in these spaces. Um, I was really lucky that you know, a lot of my friends in college who usually did accompany me to a party or to another place that had alcohol were often both aware of the fact that I didn't drink and two, that I didn't want to drink any time later. So it wasn't really like a, I didn't try it, so I didn't want it sort of thing. And those people were always very helpful in 
either clarifying a situation for someone or letting a know a host know beforehand that I wouldn't be drinking. So making sure something was there, but also in those situations, um, I think being honest and clear about the fact that I didn't want to drink, um, was helpful. And while it sometimes might make the situation a bit uncomfortable, I think for the most part, people were willing to respect those boundaries and kind of offer me a glass of water or let me know where other things to find were at a party. Nikki, have you experienced something similar? I mean, yeah, we are, our situations are, the only reason that it's a little bit different is because at Belmont, there is um, it's a dry campus, so we don't have sorority houses. We don't have anything like that. It's you're not allowed to have any kind of substances on campus, even if you are 21. So it really wasn't something that I ever had to go out of my way. It was never right in front of me ever, because it's just not. Um, that's just not how it was on our campus. But I have heard a lot about Vanderbilt, and that's really interesting. But I also, I have a friend that I've talked to and there's like, there's never really any, luckily any pressure to drink, especially, I think it's a lot different than high school. I feel like in high school there definitely was, but now it's, everyone's really just kind of doing their own thing. So no one's ever forcing anyone to do anything. It's even sometimes situations where it's like completely okay to be sober when there are other people in an alcohol-related setting. Like, it's not necessarily something that you feel like you're required to do. And uh, I've also talked to, like, a couple of my friends, and they were like, I really just don't feel like it's necessary. I feel like I don't have to. I can still enjoy myself. And no one's ever really been bad about that at all. Now, you know, part of the issue is not about choosing to drink or to not to drink. It's about venues that you know, we'll check IDs, have a minimum age of 21 to be there. So if you're not drinking, you don't have a fake ID. What are the what options of nightlife are available to you as a college student in Nashville? Nikki. Um, I know I said it, but I will always say it again because I am a big music fan. Music venues are like the one place where I feel like anyone can go no matter what. And while they do check your ID and then but you just get the giant X on your hands and you don't have to worry about it. It's like the whole, that whole setting is kind of split in half where like if you can participate, you can participate. And if you can't, you're there for the music and that is a big place for people to go. Um, That is honestly my favorite thing no matter what, but also there are venues, there's other things to do besides like go out to kind of like a bar setting. I feel like most places around here are usually 18, except for you can't, you will be marked that you cannot drink. And I feel like that makes it a lot easier to be able to go out into some shared spaces. But also even just like going to restaurants is so much fun, like trying new things and like exploring with your friends. There's so many different things to do that you can totally get into. You'll just, it'll be known that you are not allowed to drink, which I think is perfectly fine and well done most places around here. You both are from different parts of the country. Varsha, you're from Orange County, California. And Nikki, you're from my hometown of Baltimore, Maryland. If you were both to compare the nightlife options for people under 21 to from your hometowns to Nashville, who has the edge and experiences for young adults? Varsha. Um, I think it... 
Okay. I think honestly, I might have to give it to Nashville in the sense that at least the part of Orange County that I'm from is very like family oriented. It's a lot of, you know, the classic things that you would expect in Nashville too, like restaurants, um, places that a lot of families can go to. And I think my favorite thing about living in Orange County was anytime you wanted to go to an outdoor mall, there was a huge one that was readily available and accessible for everyone. I think if you're looking though for something that feels a bit more stereotypically adult, like I feel like Part of the appeal of Broadway for a lot of people is it feels like this big kind of foray into adulthood. I think, like Nikki was saying, like Nashville does have so much to offer for people our age. Um, One of my favorite things to do that I don't really do in Orange County that I get to do in Nashville is go dancing. Um, And I feel like there's a lot of great places to do that in Nashville that aren't as easily accessible in kind of the heart of Orange County. My two favorite places that I go to all the time was um, Play Nashville, which is a club that has college nights on Wednesdays. You can get in free with a student ID and they have drag shows there, which was super exciting. That's not something I got to experience back home. And then also um, line dancing classes, there's that rooftop one, but there's also another saloon called Wild Horse Saloon, which is like a family oriented like place where there is an open bar for people who want to, but they also have free line dancing classes. And I think those kind of experiences definitely made Nashville really perfect for my like years as an early 20 something. I want to thank you both so much for giving us these recommendations and thank you a ton for coming on to the show. That is recent Vanderbilt grad Varsha Nair. She was joined by Belmont student Nikki Wildly. Want to thank you both for being on the show. Really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on and sharing your experiences. All right. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Doreen Chernecki and Jackie Janos, Emily Siner, Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Limley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme music are Lorange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Jeremy Lister, Wade Anderton, and Jessica Barker. Tune in tomorrow for a conversation all about home ownership. Who can afford to buy a home these days? It's a short list. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.